0: Scientists and Hollywood movie makers have something in common, bringing dinosaurs back to life. By digging into the past, paleontologists have helped us imagine what these beasts looked like, how they lived, and how they died. Meanwhile, Hollywood gives us all the feels.
1: Bigger. Why do they always have to go bigger?
0: Together, scientists and filmmakers are engaged in a kind of de-extinction, And while the latest movie has dinosaurs battling humans for world domination, an astonishing fossil discovery seems to give us a detailed, if unsettling, picture of the day their lives ended. Well, can we really describe the dinosaurs' last hours on Earth? And why do these beasts, most of whom haven't roamed our planet for 66 million years, continue to fascinate us? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak.
2: I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, a close look at what happened when the dinosaurs died and whether we can zero in on the very day of their demise. Also, the director of the last movie in a popular dinosaur franchise tells us about the kinds of compromises he made with scientists on the set. This episode is Dinosaurs' Last Gasp.
0: For anyone who wants to see a dinosaur up close, well, mosey over to a park and toss around some breadcrumbs. The local dinosaurs will flock to you. Birds are dinosaurs just as we are mammals. Avian dinosaurs were the only dinos to survive the asteroid impact in the Gulf of Mexico 66 million years ago. But there's another way to catch a gander of Mesozoic era beasts your lumbering sauropods, Triceratops, and T-Rexes. A baby raptor? I made a promise we would bring her home. You made a promise to a dinosaur? Yeah, why?
2: In the sixth installment of the Jurassic Park franchise, and supposedly the final one, Jurassic World Dominion releases a new batch of growling, prowling, stomping reptiles into theaters.
1: I'm Colin Trevorrow,
0: the director of Jurassic World Dominion. Mr. Trevorrow, along with Emily Carmichael, set out to write a script that reunited some of the popular human characters and also drew on the most recent dinosaur discoveries. After all, we've learned a lot about dinosaurs since the first film in the series, Jurassic Park, in 1993, but even since the 2018 Jurassic World movie.
2: Mr. Trevorrow had read University of Edinburgh paleontologist Steve Brusatte's book, the rise and fall of the dinosaurs, which is riveting by the way, and sought to bring him on set as one of the show's science consultants.
1: So he was really motivated to make sure that all of the design elements that we put into play when it came to the feathered dinosaurs specifically were as accurate as they could be uh, with the knowledge we had up to this point. Uh, There were also dinosaurs discovered even while we were writing the film that we put into the movie. Uh, So we were hopefully right on the cutting edge as dinosaurs ripped from the headlines. And that
0: includes a new species, Morocentrepidus, that was discovered in Utah. But it's the feathered dinosaurs that may be the film's standouts. They reflect our understanding that dinosaurs, like the late Cretaceous Pyroraptor and the very large Therinosaurus, had plumage. But why did they have these feathers? Perhaps it was for camouflage maybe to impress mates or regulate body temperature, we don't know for certain. But at any rate, they were ready for their close-ups.
2: Colin, some of your fans online are particularly excited that the new film has feathered dinosaurs because it reflects the latest science. Was it tricky to create feathered dinosaurs that still look like dinosaurs? In other words, you want to take advantage of the cool progress in science, but you don't want to disappoint fans who want their dinosaurs to look a certain way.
1: Well, you know, the bar was set when the kid in the first movie said they'd look like a six-foot turkey. And, <laughs> and we had to to try and find a way for that not to be true, and especially when it came to the Therizinosaurus. But, you know, both of them required a, a tremendous amount of research in a way that our other dinosaurs did, not like we know what sauropods uh, look like, we know how they walk, we know how theropods walk. These, both of them, uh, were very different. I would say the pyroraptor was maybe uh, a little bit easier when it came to defining uh, its body structure and the way that it walked. You know, it's a kind of raptor, and and we we've worked with them before. The Therizinosaurus is shaped like nothing we've ever seen. Looks like no dinosaur we've ever known. Is it has these massive claws uh, that are you know, the size of baseball bats, but is an herbivore, and it, so we don't even really understand how or why that animal is, and the mystery of it is part of what you know thrilled me about it.
2: What did um, you and Steve talk about in terms of how to create feathers on a dinosaur? I mean, do we really know how many they had and where the feathers were on on the body and sort of how they were placed?
1: Uh you know there's a a certain amount of knowledge and a certain amount of of like anything in science you know this it's not that it's guesswork but we're taking what we know and then presuming things that we don't know and assuming things until we find evidence for that uh i think we discovered a lot of things based on how we created the digital model and how we created the animatronics so the pyro raptor specifically we had a group i remember i would go into where they were making the animatronics and this group of four women who all had feathers spread out everywhere, uh, feathers from birds all over the world. And they were constantly placing these feathers alongside each other and finding out how they would lay along a body that was structured the way that this animal would be, especially along the brow ridge and the face where it turned into more lizard-like dinosaur skin and, and where the feathers began was to make it not look like it had a beard. Like these were, these were long conversations. And ultimately, we landed where we did. And then at that point, when turning it into a digital model, into a CG creature, you're having to figure out how to simulate snow on feathers, uh, water, wind, uh, all these different elements that uh, it would be hard enough already if it was just standing there on like a regular overcast day. Uh, we put this dinosaur through a lot. And so we, we really had to, to figure every part of it out.
2: And, and what about the, the red color in the, in the feathers? I don't think that's giving too much way to say that the color red appears in these dinosaur feathers. Um, do we really know what the colors were of dinosaurs? We don't,
1: and and I don't think we can unless unless Steve has some secret he hasn't uh, divulged. I don't think we have real evidence, but we can imagine they were just like birds, there were probably many different colors, like a whole spectrum. And so we were just choosing colors that we knew, you know, existed in, in birds today. And I, I love the opportunity to make a really vibrantly colored dinosaur. You know, we've we've moved from essentially kind of gray-green into uh, over the course of our films, uh, I think they've become more colorful and in this film, the most colorful. What I love most about the feathers on that creature is, Yes, there's red, but then it moves into this blue that turns into this almost like silvery charcoal gray. There's this way that it, that it evolves down the length of the wing uh, that I, I think is absolutely beautiful.
2: Now, even though you are devoted to the facts of science, there is often tension between filmmakers and their science consultants, uh, because in the end, you need to make a compelling story. Was there any advice that Dr. Brussati gave you about the dinosaurs that you had to deviate from or you had to make a compromise for the sake of the story?
1: Absolutely, uh, I did not know that Therizinosaurus was an herbivore until way later than, than I should have known. Uh, and you know, Emily and I wrote this sequence. You know, knew that we wanted this dinosaur in the movie, and then you know, I, I would definitely go to Steve uh, before we really designed anything. You know, just more at a script stage, uh, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't know. Like, why would it eat her? Like, it's it's going to want those berries over there." And so basically, we made the scene about his note. We, you know, there's a deer eating its berries. It. it Kills the deer uh, so he can eat its berries, and then uh, when it hears something is in the realm of its food, it threatens. You know, it threatens what it perceives to be a threat.
2: I'd like to move from the science of the film and look at an overarching theme in your films that is related. The film you directed in 2012, "Safety Not Guaranteed," brought you to national attention, and I really enjoyed that film. It is about time travel, and in it, the humans want to travel back in time about a decade. Not sixty-six million years, but it seems to me that safety, not guaranteed, shares a theme with the Jurassic films. What is it about time travel that interests you so much? Um,
1: I've always linked time travel to regret uh, a- as a human emotion. That you know, if we're going to think about going backwards, it's probably because there's something that we did uh, that we want to change or something we experienced that we wish that we could make ourselves not experience. And that's a it's a very human, relatable human idea, I think. Uh, when it comes to dinosaurs, uh, it's funny that you mentioned it because in Safety Net Guarantee, Jake Johnson's character, when he's talking to to Mark Duplass's character says, can you imagine going through time seeing dinosaurs with your own eyes? Uh, So, you know, we can suggest they're in a shared universe, I guess, but, you know, to me, the idea that that dinosaurs actually existed on our planet a long time ago uh, and are existing now, it is also a time travel movie. It's a kind of time travel movie. We're just not the ones time traveling, they are.
2: Well, I also wonder about the iconic dinosaur roar in the Jurassic films. What do we know about how they really sounded and how did you go about recreating those sounds, those screeches and those roars?
1: Well, you know, the real answer is we we don't really, but we do have an idea based on, uh, you know, the size of what their vocal cords would have been, how they would fit into that skeletal structure, what the skulls were like specifically. And, you know, in Jurassic Park 3, there's that moment where Alan Grant has, you know, what he believes is a perfect recreation of the vocal cords of the raptor, uh, which I, we recreated and I have one of them now. Uh, it's one of my favorite pieces that I, that I brought home from the film. But I thought that was a really interesting moment in that film because what the sound that was made was not the same as the sound that we'd been hearing in the films up to that point, which I, I thought was like an almost meta kind of moment uh, in that film. Um, but, you know, in the end, we actually combine sounds from all different kinds of animals to create them uh, and sometimes way deep, you know, low will put, you know, growling engines and other kind of things that, that aren't even human and, uh, you know, we do what we need to do to, to hopefully uh, make them feel real and the goal is to make it to just for the audience to fully believe that it's coming from within the animal and, and not, you know, in some studio somewhere.
2: I think there's no doubt that that illusion has been achieved well, finally, Colin. I assume that it's sad for you to say goodbye to working with dinosaurs. Is Jurassic World Dominion really the last of the Jurassic franchise, or could you see yourself attempting a de extinction event again in film?
1: I don't think it would be, should be me I think that i i've had I've had my say about dinosaurs and and i I'm so proud to have been involved and i'm I'm so satisfied with the experience but because they're for everyone, because everyone has their own personal relationship with dinosaurs, there has to be another filmmaker out there uh, who has a vision for where this could go in the future. And and I hope, I hope we hear from them.
2: Colin, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us.
1: All right, Molly. Appreciate it.
0: Colin Trevorrow is the director of Jurassic World Dominion. Scientists also help us bring the dinosaurs back to life by creating a portrait of how they lived and how they perished.
3: I think we've been fascinated with ever since this extinction became noticed by paleontologists is, you know, why did the non-avian dinosaurs that we often think of as being so dominant or having this reign over the planet almost entirely disappear?
2: Next extinct extinction theories and what we do know about the final days of the species of the late Cretaceous.
0: This episode is Dinosaurs Last Gasp on Big Picture Science. Most dinosaurs exited the stage 66 million years ago, so why does our interest in them border on obsession?
2: Well, it's not just because they're gone. Most animals that ever existed are extinct, after all, including some impressive ones. A 10-foot-long miocene rodent called Phoboromis, for example, was surely terrifying, but its snarling ratty overbite doesn't appear on the cover of children's books.
0: Well, here's why I think we can't shake our dinosaur addiction, not that we really want to. Dinosaurs fill the space in our imagination where monsters dwell, only the dinosaurs were real. And beyond that, I believe we have an inherent interest, fostered by evolution, in anything with big teeth, be they sharks, tigers, or dinosaurs. Also, dinosaurs were very successful. Humans think we are the crown of creation, but Homo sapiens has only been around about 300,000 years. Dinosaurs populated the earth for an impressive 150 million years. But maybe the most compelling reason for our interest in these exotic beasts is their sudden violent demise. So, what do we know about how that happened? Well, if we think of the planet at the end of the Cretaceous as a crime scene, we'd look for clues. There's been so many ideas
3: over the years, dozens of different ideas, and they range from things like an internal biological clock that kind of caused dinosaurs to melt down, to they got cataracts because the prehistoric sun was too bright, that caterpillars ate all the green food and the ecosystems collapsed. But the thing is that this was a mass extinction that affects 75% of life on earth, on land as well as in the seas. Really, there was no place that was untouched. My name is Riley Black, and I'm the author of The Last Days of the Dinosaurs.
0: While a lot of causes for the extinction have been floated over the years, it seems the demise of the dinos is no longer a cold case. The idea suggested by Lewis and Walter Alvarez more than 40 years ago has held up. It's really the asteroid impact
3: that's come forward as the sort of best supported idea for what sparked this extinction.
2: Even the once popular hypothesis that massive volcanic eruptions in India caused the die-off takes a backseat to the impact theory. New research about the timing of the Deccan traps shows that these giant eruptions started well before the asteroid hit and continued well after and surprisingly that they might have mitigated the climate disruption caused by the impact.
3: So pumping all these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere lots of carbon dioxide lots of methane those global warming gases actually mitigated the impact winter that was caused in the aftermath of the asteroid impact so in a sense these volcanic eruptions went from being like a contender as a culprit for this, you know, ecological murder, more or less, into something that actually prevented the extinction from being worse. So a lot of these things that we thought as alternate hypotheses it started to come into focus as a complex part of this overall picture in which the asteroid plays a central part.
2: In her book, Ms. Black lays out what the last days of the dinosaurs might have been like. So say you were a triceratops in the semi-tropical forests of North America in the late Cretaceous, and you wake up on that fateful day. What do you see, and what happens next?
3: So 66 million years ago, there was no sort of impending sense of doom or that something was changing or that an extinction was about to happen. In fact, the asteroid struck so fast that, you know, despite all the art that we have of dinosaurs kind of looking at this comet, looking to the skies in fear, it would happen so quickly they wouldn't even be able to see it. It just would, have, to them, would it seem like it just happened very suddenly. So one moment life was as it had always been for the past million years or so. And the next moment, within minutes, really, everything started to change.
0: Okay, so it it doesn't see this thing falling out of the sky the way we see on television all the time. There might be a light on the horizon or something like that, but then what? So what? You know, it just goes back to eating.
3: Yeah so exactly so the after the initial impact you know maybe these dinosaurs saw something some flash distant flash of light but within about 15 minutes they would have started to feel the earth shake basically the tremors that were caused by this impact i mean the the numbers when you think about how fast the asteroid is moving how fast the earth is moving the basic physics of of how this works when you have two speeding pieces of rock that hit each other it was so powerful that really with In less than an hour, you start to have multiple earthquakes, multiple seismic events that are so heavy that it's sloshing around whatever water is in the lakes and the rivers. And then within a couple of hours, the heat in the air sort of would have gone up basically that you have all this debris that was thrown up into the atmosphere by that impact as it's coming back down it's creating friction this creates an infrared pulse so basically within 24 hours the air temperature rises to about 500 degrees fahrenheit which if you've ever broiled a chicken that's about what you broil a chicken at so you would have had basically broiled dinosaurs and other forms of life all over the planet so this was incredibly fast
0: so in fact these species the dinos in particular were cooked they were cooked in place. Absolutely. If you
3: couldn't get underwater or you couldn't get underground, there really was nowhere to hide from this. There's no way to pre-adapt to 500 degree Fahrenheit temperatures unless you're like an extremophile of bacteria or something like that. If you're you know, a crocodile living in a pond and you go to the bottom of that pond, if you're a mammal that goes in a burrow that's a few inches below ground, that would have saved you from this initial infrared pulse. But if you're something as big as a T-Rex, you know, 40 foot long, nine ton dinosaur, there really is nowhere to go.
0: Yeah, had had they only been cave-dwelling creatures. You know, it's often joked, Riley, that, look, the dinosaurs were a 150-million-year experiment. That's a long time. Homo sapiens has been around for, what, 300,000 years or something like that. So these dinosaurs were highly refined by evolution. You know, they were really good fits to the environment. And you would think that they could survive one bad accident. I mean, some of them. Yeah, it's something that I think we've been fascinated with ever
3: since this extinction became noticed by paleontologists is, you know, why did the non-avian dinosaurs that we often think of as being so dominant or having this reign over the planet uh, almost entirely disappear? I mean, we still have birds. They're They're continuing the legacy of the dinosaurs, but it's different. And we know that dinosaurs survived at least one mass extinction before, at the end of the Triassic, the beginning of the Jurassic period. It's right in the heart of dinosaur history. You had a mass extinction that they walked through basically unscathed. So they survived changes in climate, you know, the continents shifting around, all these alterations. But that really, to me, speaks to how extreme this event was. And even though we focus on the dinosaurs, you know, 75% of known species went extinct during this event. Within, you know, between that first day of terrible heat and the three following years of chill and impact winter, and that it affected, you know, the seas as well as the land creatures that lived in the air as well. So this really was a global event. But I think we have such a connection to dinosaurs that we we want it justified. We want to know why they're not
0: here anymore. You mentioned the seas as well, I mean, because there were, you know, big critters in the seas too. But I would think that if you're under, you know, 10 feet of water or more, I mean, what do you care? I mean, does this really affect you? And if so, how? A lot of creatures in the marine
3: realm would have been shielded from that initial heat pulse. But this is kind of a one-two punch. So the target rock, the rock that that asteroid hit, was full of basically sulfur-based compounds. And when you aerosolize those, we know this from modern human history, those are really good at reflecting sunlight back out into space. Basically, the sun's rays that were reaching the planet was reduced by about 20% or more. And photosynthesis more or less ceased for a period of about three years. So what do ocean ecosystems rely on? They rely on photosynthetic algae. So it's kind of like pulling the rug out from all these ecosystems where if you have basically the producers, basically the basis of ecosystems on land and in the oceans, almost entirely wiped out, it's years of organisms trying to get by on scraps. There's one paper about basically the extinction of photosynthetic algae that noted unless some of those algae were able to basically eat organic debris, they're what we call mixotrophs, so they can photosynthesize and eat other stuff. If they hadn't been present, the oceans would have gone back to a single-celled state. Basically what we haven't seen in about 500 million years. So this was really Earth coming incredibly close to having its reset button pushed, at least in terms of biodiversity.
0: Well, what what about the mammals? I mean, of course, we're attuned to mammals being mammals and all, but, you know, they they, they got their start about the same time the dinos did. So they too had been around for about 150 million years, but they did survive. Uh, What was it about mammalian behavior that gave them this edge?
3: Yeah, so there was a mass extinction of mammals in North America and particularly we have like the best evidence of the before and after snapshots of this mass extinction marsupials were the most common mammals and they almost entirely went extinct and that's where allowed placental mammals basically our closer relatives to proliferate in the aftermath But what allowed mammals sort of as a group, if we think of them to survive, a lot of them were relatively small. The largest mammal around the end of the Cretaceous was about the size of a house cat. So most of them were little. Most of them either made burrows or could make use of burrows underground. And they had a refuge basically by staying tiny, by diversifying at small size. They're able to make it through. And this affects us directly in that the earliest primates are as old as T Rex. They didn't look like monkeys, they look more like these arboreal shrew things. But this mass extinction affected our ancestry as well. It's not that primates came after, they were present and made it through this mass extinction. We don't know all the details as to why, but it's likely that most mammals survived by finding refuge underground and then basically living on whatever they could find through the years of impact winter.
0: You know, this, this makes me also wonder, the age of reptiles, the thunder lizards of your. I mean, couldn't it have restarted? Couldn't have the reptiles kind of picked up where they were left off, I, I suppose? I mean, I have birds in my garden, for example. And uh, as we know, those are dinosaurs. I like eating fried chicken, which means, I guess, that I like to eat dinosaurs. Uh, but, you know, they, they just didn't regain the throne somehow.
3: Yeah, it's something I've wondered about quite a bit because we have dinosaurs that survived. We have birds, and some of whom got very, very big in about the 10 million years after the KPG extinction. I'm not really sure why that second age of reptiles never happened. It might've been basically what survived those starting points were reproducing or having some kind of niche or there was something about their biology that prevented them from reproducing fast enough. Whereas mammals, which had lived for a very long time under sort of, you know, this world where reptiles were very prominent, they reproduced quickly. They had a lot of offspring. They, they may have filled up ecosystems so quickly that their competitors amongst the reptiles just didn't have a chance to do the same. So you have all these interactions between all these survivors, they're starting to proliferate and take on these new roles in the world that's
0: changed. Well, finally, Riley, now you write in your book that you truly miss the dinosaurs. And while I'm no paleontologist, I miss them too. I mean, as a kid, I was absolutely transfixed by the uh, mounted skeletons of brontosaurus, as they were called then, and tyrannosaurus at the local natural history museum. Uh, the paintings of Charles Knight, you know, showing these forests filled with these exotic beasts. Why is that? Why do we love dinosaurs?
3: I think for many of us, they're not only our introduction to science, but introduction to some really big ideas. Because when you meet a dinosaur when you're very, very young, looking at those skeletons, like the brontosaurus at the old uh, AMNH exhibit, some things have certainly inspired me as a kid. That skeleton embodies some big ideas. That One, that life used to be very different in the past, that deep time exists, that the world has been around for millions and millions and millions of years, that some forms of life aren't around anymore, that extinction is a reality and life changes over time depending on what time period you're looking at. So evolution is a reality. So even if you can't articulate it in all these terms, I feel like dinosaurs embody all these big ideas that tell us important things about our planet and our role on it. And there's just the mystery of it, really. I think we, we love them we miss them because they require imagination to form this relationship with them because we're never gonna have all the answers that we might wish to. We're starting from the bones, we're starting from the geology and what we can tell, But there's something about that that plugs directly into curiosity, that this isn't just observing something about the natural world, but requires our active participation to understand these animals.
0: Riley Black, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
3: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Seth.
2: Riley Black is the author of The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. Well, to summarize, the sequence of events that led to the demise of the dinosaurs, it began with a rock from space, an asteroid, seismic events that occurred after impact, heated material is lofted into the air, and I think she said that the temperature got up to 500 degrees?
0: Yeah. Now, that temperature is not the Earth. That's the temperature of the air above the Earth, right? Because, look... If you know a little high school physics, you can figure out how much energy this rock seven miles across, moving at maybe 30 kilometers a second, you know, how much energy that would have to dissipate when it hit the earth, right? And, and, and it's, you know, billions of atomic bombs worth of energy. So It's a lot of energy. And how do you, how, well, how do you get rid of that energy? What does it manifest itself as? Well, to begin with, it vaporizes the rock. So you get all this, you know, liquid rock going up into the atmosphere that comes down as these, you know, little particles, microtectites and that sort of thing. But you also shake the earth, as you said. It also produces earthquakes.
2: Billions of atomic bombs? Did you really mean billions with a B? There was more energy in that asteroid hitting the planet than there was in a, you know, say the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima?
0: Yeah, billions of times more energy, indeed, indeed. So, I mean, you know, it wasn't a super atomic bomb. It was a completely different category altogether. There's an enormous amount of energy.
2: The asteroid that hit the Earth 66 million years ago was not the only rock from space to hit the Earth, and it won't be the only rock from space to hit the Earth. Seth, how concerned should we be uh, about another asteroid hitting Earth and, and creating significant damage?
0: Well, uh, you can reckon that it's a 100% probability that it will happen. As you point out, there are smaller rocks that hit all the time. About every 100 years, you get something like, uh, well, what uh, slammed into Chelyabinsk in Russia not terribly long ago in the Ural Mountains there. those Those happen about once every 100 years, but a rock such as the one that... You know, caused the demise of the dinosaurs, seven miles across. That happens maybe every 50 or 100 million years, right? So it's been 66 million years, and you could say, well, a rock that size could happen at any point. In other words, you know, we, we could suffer the same fate as the dinosaurs uh, tomorrow.
2: Except the dinosaurs didn't have a space program, and I believe that our space program, <laughs> our astronomers, are looking out for some of these enormous rocks.
0: They are, and they were trying for a long time, going back 20, 30, maybe more years, to interest the government, in particular NASA, to study You know these things. How often can you expect a rock that size? Uh, what would you be able to do about it? Anything? Is there some way to deflect it or whatever? You know, that was a subject they thought was worth some money. And uh, Congress didn't agree for a long time. But then, you know, this uh, Shoemaker-Levy comet slammed into Jupiter, making big holes in the atmosphere of that planet the size of the Earth. And uh, I think that woke up people in Congress, because now we do have uh, programs to try and find the next rock.
2: Well, now that we know what happened, is there any undiscovered evidence left at a 66 million-year-old crime scene? Ms. Black says yes. Scientists are trying to refine the deep-time picture of post-impact Earth.
3: And what paleontologists are looking for now is saying, okay, did this play out in the same way around the planet? So even if we know what the victims of this extinction were, we know what the extinction trigger was, figuring out how this played out basically in real time, if we're able to go back there, that's certainly going to change with new discoveries.
0: Next, we hear about one of those new discoveries, a unique cache of fossils unearthed in a North Dakota dig that may be a snapshot from the very day of impact.
4: It gives us an idea about what those animals that lived there, what did they actually face?
2: This episode is Dinosaurs' Last Gasp on Big Picture Science.
0: It's impressive that scientists can piece together events occurring tens of millions of years ago, but the idea of zeroing in on a single day seems unfathomable. And yet evidence capturing the very day that the dinosaurs died is looking rock solid.
2: Imagine again those fateful moments when an asteroid slams into the Gulf of Mexico. The rock itself is vaporized on impact, debris is lofted high into the atmosphere, seismic waves radiate through the Earth, around the world, including into the interior of North America, into what is now Montana and North Dakota.
0: 66 million years later, rocks in southwestern North Dakota that make up the fossil-rich Tana site Seem to have frozen time the events following the impact 2,000 miles away. We're talking minutes to hours after the asteroid hit.
4: That site is just incredible. I mean, it's completely unexpected. You know, one dreams about finding a site like that. I'm Anusia Chinsami Turan. I'm based at the University of Cape Town and I'm a paleobiologist.
0: Dr. Chinsami Tehran is not involved with the TANIS site, but she helps us understand how this patch of North Dakota rock can reveal events from the day of the Cretaceous Paleogene Impact, the KPG event, formerly known as the KT event.
2: Okay, there is a lot of shorthand there, Seth. I wonder if we could just break that down. Okay, the KT event, of course, is the Cretaceous Tertiary Event. That's the extinction event that ended the lives of those dinosaurs. And interestingly, the K is the first letter of the German for Cretaceous.
0: That's right. And Cretaceous just means that that particular layer had a lot of chalk in it because, you know, that's the Greek for chalk. Right?
2: Well, what is it that distinguishes these layers? You have the Jurassic layer, you have the Cretaceous.
0: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think that's a good question, actually, but you know, it's like a layer cake, of course, but it's a layer cake in the rock. But that just had to do with the conditions of the Earth at the time, right? If that particular place was underwater, was part of an ocean, you know, uh, 200 million years ago, you'd get one kind of sediment making the layer. And if it wasn't, you'd get a different kind of sediment and so forth.
2: And the Cretaceous followed the Jurassic. In fact, some of the dinosaurs of the Cretaceous are some of the most well-known, like T-Rex.
0: Yep. Yep. Very often. That's right, That, that the, the really charismatic dinosaurs were, were in the Cretaceous. They should have called the movie Cretaceous Park.
2: <laughs> okay. Now... <laughs> What you also said, though, was that the Cretaceous paleogene impact is the new name for what was the KT event. So it's now called the KPG event. Why did they rename tertiary paleogene? Well, this
0: is a result of having more detailed knowledge of what was going on here. You know, you used to talk about the primary, secondary, and tertiary uh, periods of time, if you will, in geological history. But now we know so much more that we can refine that taxonomy. We can refine that classification scene, right? This this is done essentially independent of what critters were in these particular layers of rock.
2: That came later. In fact, Seth, uh, the Paleogene refers to the first three epochs of the tertiary. So, as you said exactly, this was an effort of geologists to be more precise.
0: And, of course, it leads to a certain amount of confusion. After 30 years of talking about the KT boundary, it's now the KPG boundary. But it's the same boundary. It's this very thin layer, about a half an inch thick, of iridium-rich material in the geological record. So, to sum it up, the KPG event is that which marks the end of the Cretaceous, and, incidentally, put about a 100-mile-wide dent into the waters off the Yucatan coast.
2: Now, the Tannis site itself was discovered by University of North Georgia scientists in 2008, but they realized there were some interesting fossils there. So they brought in University of Kansas graduate student Robert De Palma and put him to work digging. And when one of his big reveals of the Tannis site was made public in 2019, claiming to shed light on the very day the dinosaurs died, well, it was met with astonishment and skepticism by scientists. But the skepticism is fading with recent publication of subsequent chemical analysis of tannocyte material. Dr.
0: Chinsami Tehran says the strength of the evidence rests upon tiny glass spherules or microtectites found in some uniquely fossilized fish.
4: What is spectacular about the tannocyte is that it preserves these uh, microtectites. And those microtectites are actually glass uh, spherules they like molten rock that becomes glass, and they are preserved at the site abundantly. There are thousands of them. And the really cool thing about them is that these uh, microtectites can be dated, and they've been dated, and they match chemically the Chichulab, um microtectites as well. So that is, is really very, very surprising, especially when you think about, you know, how far these sites are from one another.
0: So what you're saying is that they're these little spherules of glass. I mean, they were just, if you will, the molten debris from the impact, right? The asteroid slams into the Earth over here, but it kicks all this molten stuff up into the air, and it falls down, right? Everywhere, I suppose.
4: Exactly, when the impact happened, there's so much of pressure and so much of heat that it actually melts the sediment they thrown up into the skies. As they drop down, they become these glass spherules that rain down onto the Earth. And they basically get into the water. They get thrown into the atmosphere. And they can be found in various places. You you might find them on the moon,
0: right? I mean, some of them aren't, aren't going to drop back down if they're kicked up with a you know, with the escape velocity or more, right, that they could just leave the Earth all together and, and end up on Mars or the Moon. Maybe we'll find... Finally... I have
4: no idea. <laughs> and I'm not even going to speculate on that.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I've, I've, I've seen it written that this is a real possibility. So, so, so the fishes, the fish were trying to, obviously, they were trying to get some oxygen out of the water wherever they were, and so they're breathing, and their gills fill up with these microtectites.
4: Exactly exactly so th- that's what's uh, surmised to have occurred and it makes complete sense because you know you have these very big fishes these pedal fishes and sturgeons and their gills are like filled with these um, microtectites
0: well i think this was brought to light by a graduate student at the university of kansas at least at that time robert de palma he had excavated the site over several years beginning in 2012 he was digging up there, kind of on his own dime on, and in his own time. He was just digging around, and he found these fossilized fish. And De Palma was savvy enough to realize this could be very important. What do you know about this guy?
4: Uh, you know, I don't know him personally, so I, I've, never, I've never met him even at a conference. At least I don't remember meeting him at a conference. And uh, so I only know what came out in the publications, but I believe he's working with uh, Phil Manning from uh, Manchester. And Phil is a very well-known, well-recognized paleontologist, and he does um, a lot of the chemical analysis. And I guess this is what's happened in terms of uh, Robert's own development is now trying to date the fossils, uh, try to link them directly to the Chicxulub site.
0: Just out of curiosity... You know, how, how does one find dinosaur fossils anyway? I mean, you, you see on television these stories where these people are, you know, chipping away very carefully at a piece of rock and then brushing away the dust and so forth. And they can tell, oh, this little bit here, that's a, a you know, a jawbone from something or other. I mean, uh, does it work that way when you go on a highway trip and you go through a cut in the highway? Can you see the layer there between the Cretaceous and the Paleogenic? I mean, can you see that?
4: Well, in some cases you can. Um, in South Africa, we don't have the Katy boundary preserved, but we do have the Permian-Triassic boundary. And it's crystal clear that way you can see uh, a boundary between the two different periods. And I've actually seen the Cretaceous-Tertiary boundary in Denmark, actually. And it's it's absolutely spectacular. I remember I was completely astounded because you know you could go up and put your finger on a spot and say this is when the KT happened because it was so clear and you know the iridium layer is just this very small one one to two centimeter layer of rock and it's just amazing that you you can say below this dinosaurs existed and above this there are no more non-avian dinosaurs
0: and and as as far as the topography goes, I mean, there was an arm of the ocean that extended up there near near the China site in in, in North Dakota, uh, I think they called it the Western Interior Sea. It seems to have a lot of names, that stretched it stretched from the coastline of Texas, you know, sort of from Houston all the way up into, well, I mean eventually Canada, I suppose. and And that what happened here to these fish was they were living in that water, or you know, some branch of that water. And suddenly the Earth shook because of this impact. So, so it was kind of like a liquid seismometer, right? I mean, the water begins sloshing back and forth, and uh, the gills of the fish uh, fill up with these microspherules. And you know, not a not a pleasant day for the fish either.
4: Not um, a pleasant and- day for anyone at the site, I should say.
0: <laughs> so this is truly astounding. I mean, I find it astounding, and I'm not a paleontologist. The idea that Here you can see what was happening, you know, hours after this impact, right there on the ground. Has there been any new discovery in the Tanna site or elsewhere that bears on this whole question?
4: Well, at the Tanna site, the most recent discoveries have been a um, skin impression and a limb of a dinosaur and the the other interesting thing about it is that the skin impressions uh, suggest that it was one of the dinosaurs that didn't have a feathery integument but rather had a typical reptilian scaly skin so it's a scaly skin impression that is preserved
0: okay but finding that doesn't mean that that is a fossil that was made the day the dinos died I mean, it's the microspherules that strike me as being, you know, the, the really important evidence here that ties this to a particular day.
4: Exactly. I agree with that entirely, that I think, you know, you can find various fossils at the site, and it tells us that th- these were the animals and these were the organisms that were around at the time. But finding the microtektites and being able to date them and match them what the ones found at the Chikchulab site is actually what is really um, crucial. That is really the real evidence. And Lucia, how does
0: this change paleontology, right? We, we have a little window, a crystal ball, if you will, that, that allows us to see that terrible day, maybe the worst day in the history of life on planet Earth. But, you know, uh, as a, a working uh, paleontologist, is my career altered by that?
4: Well, I think it's not altered, but it certainly helps us understand the, the what actually happened. And I think it gives us an idea about that particular site, what those animals that lived there, what did they actually face? But I think it's important to realize that this is just one site, one locality, that there are many parts of the world where Obviously, dinosaurs were also impacted, and they all didn't die in the same way. There were other ways in which they also died. We know that when um, such an impact occurs, there would be all sorts of catastrophes. There would be wildfires, there would be uh, debris thrown into the air, there'd be noxious gases, there'd be earthquakes, there'd be all sorts of things. And this was certainly a tumultuous time for life on earth. And I think when you lose 75% or more of life at a particular time, we really are dealing with a mass catastrophe. And clearly, dinosaurs were the biggest victims, but there were many others that also died at the same time.
0: Anusia, what's uh, kind of the next step for paleontologists? I mean. You know, they're confronted, they have been for decades, for centuries, really. The whole question of why why are the dinosaurs gone and when did that happen? And it sounds like, well, we kind of know the answers to that. So what's to do? I mean, you can keep finding new species of dinos, I suppose, but that sounds like stamp collecting, which I don't say in a pejorative way because I happen to be a stamp collector. But I'm just saying that, you know, what, what are the big problems now?
4: Uh, one of the big questions for me is the what crossed that boundary because not all dinosaurs actually went extinct because we know that birds are dinosaurs, and the lineage that gave rise to to modern birds that we see are around today so obviously not all dinosaurs went extinct and I think the big question is what makes the avian dinosaur, that avian lineage different from the non-avian dinosaurs. What, what was the difference? You know, we always thought it may have been some physiological difference between the, the dinosaurs, the ancestors of birds and later birds. But we still don't know the answer to that. They, but there's obviously something that allowed that lineage of dinosaurs to survive because they are with us still.
0: Are you going to go see Jurassic World Dominion in the theaters?
4: I haven't, but I usually do try to go and see all the dinosaur movies. In fact, I have to go and see it because everybody will ask me about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Anusia chinsami Turan, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
4: It's my pleasure.
2: Anusia chinsami Turan is a paleobiologist at the University of Cape Town. So the big question, Seth that we asked at the top of the program, is whether or not we really can get a snapshot of the very day that the dinosaurs started to die. And I, I wonder what you make of the evidence.
0: Well, I'm not a paleontologist, obviously, but it certainly seems convincing to me. I mean, you, know, you, you see these gills of fish, fossilized fish, clogged with this little, these little beads of molten glass. I mean, that's exactly what you would expect from a big rock hitting the earth. I mean, it, it all fits into place. It's circumstantial evidence, of course, but I don't know that we're going to get anything better than that. There was nobody around.
2: Well, there were no humans around, <laughs> nobody was yes. documenting it, but there were these animals, and it pains me, and I think it pains all of us, to think about how those animals suffered. That an extinction event, you know, is not a trivial event, it's, it's a, a tragic mass die off.
0: It is. And as we discussed with some of our guests, you know, we can also miss the dinosaurs. But on the other hand, you know, if the dinos didn't make way, you know, we wouldn't be here lamenting the fact that they're gone.
2: Something else that struck me is it's notable the way science and the filmmakers have worked together to engage our imagination about dinosaurs. Uh, It is the research of scientists that continually redefine the story of how the dinosaurs lived and how they died. But films like The Jurassic films have provided those indelible images. That stays with us.
0: It does. I don't know that that advances the science directly, but what it does do is, you know, I'm I'm sure there, there are just hundreds of thousands of kids who will see these Jurassic Park films and decide they want to become a paleontologist. That's maybe the big impact of science in the cinema. It gets kids interested in science.
2: The other big impact that we've been talking about today. Yes. Well, it's always fun to talk about dinosaurs because we miss them, too, even though their accent made our mammalian lives possible. So we leave you with the reminder that not all dinosaurs perished. The show is possible thanks to the evolved abilities of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
0: Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization, interested in the evolution of life and intelligence. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
2: Original music in this program is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that looks at the last days of the dinosaurs and their return to the movies one more time is called Dinosaurs' Last Gasp.
1: Thing I'm going to say is my theory.
0: Ready? <laughs> my theory by A. L. brackets, miss brackets. This theory goes as follows and begins now. All brontosauruses are thin at one end,
1: much, much thicker in the middle, and then
0: thin again at the
3: far
1: end.
3: That is my theory. It is mine and belongs to me, and
1: I own it and what it is too. <laughs> That's it. Is it?